Hello, welcome to The Armin Show, where we talk about everything science, human behavior, creativity, and more. Thanks for joining, and make sure to subscribe. Joining me today, we have our delightful co-host, Rebecca Faith Lawson. You have seen her recently. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Glad to have Rebecca on. And on this one, we have the author of this wonderful book, Why We Need to Be Wild, One Woman's Quest for Ancient Human Answers to 21st Century Problems. Jessica Carew-Craft, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you both. Glad to have you on here. Your book is colorful. It reminds us of nature. It has greenery on it. Long live mm -hmm. nature. That's the first thing that comes to mind <laughs> when I see it or when someone would see it, which is cool. It is a bold examination of how Paleolithic wisdom could solve our 21st century problems. That's cool. Looking back at the past to figure out more for today. Before we get into the material of it, question, how would you describe your path to where you are today? Always like to start with that. Yeah, well, it begins with insatiable curiosity as a child, I would say, and just uh, always seeking more knowledge, always having a lot of questions about tons of different academic fields and subjects, and uh, becoming a journalist by way of anthropology. So I studied anthropology in college and then got a couple of master's degrees. And so I took a job writing content for tech and I worked for venture capitalists and startup CEOs and advised people about, you know, what they should be putting on their websites and how to appear in the media. And uh, it was during that time that I started to kind of question the foundation of what our society was and what we were developing into, which seemed to be too highly invested in uh, techno utopia. And so I, um, did a 180 degree switch around. <laughs> and this is the story in the book, so I won't give too much away. But I, I went into nature and I became a trained naturalist and I got acquired a bunch of wilderness skills. And I spent time with people practicing um, ancient human wisdom and, uh, and learned those skills myself and then decided, hey, I think more people need to know about this. The fact that there are people doing this and that it offers a fresh, healthy, happy lifestyle to those who undertake various parts of it. Um, and that's how I arrived at writing the book. So, um, yeah, very, very happy that it's finally coming out. We may all three of us be observational. So I want to check with each of us. So Jessica, then Rebecca, then me. Can you speak on your observational nature taking in the world? Because not everybody is like that. What is that quality? Why does it speak to you specifically? I would say that's how we're born, right? That's how a child learns is solely by observing and, you know, using our five senses to integrate all of the feedback that we're getting from the environment. I think I really honed that into kind of an analytical observation. When you're saying not everybody is observers, I think maybe what I would say is like, not everybody is an analytical observer. They might not be asking so many follow-up questions to what they perceive. But I think if you're if you're try if you're educated in certain ways and have gone through various trainings, I'm, I'm thinking even like art history is a mode of learning about observation. For me, yeah, it's it's all about what kind of knowledge can I apply to what I'm perceiving. You're very analytical. Do you think that's just part of your personality? Gosh, got you got to ask my parents. But um, <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a household that was quite intellectual. My dad was a college, is a college professor. His father was. So there's always been this sort of trend of um, what, what knowledge can we seek and how can we bring that out into the world that I was raised in? So I think that made me quite an analytical mm -hmm. observer. 
and then just my own personal nature and that curiosity and just wanting to know why is this like this, which can be annoying. I have children who are also quite um, analytical and it, it, there comes a time every day when I'm like, that's enough questions. We got to stop. <laughs> was there a point in time where you felt there was a disconnect to nature? Like there was a specific time where you're like, that's, this is really off. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a pivotal moment that I describe in the book when I was working at a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, kind of the heart, the throbbing heart of the tech life uh, about eight years ago. And I was getting like really bothered by the interiors, the LED lights, which are kind of known to irritate certain sensitive people. And so I'd have to go outside and take walks. And um, I mean, I've always been an appreciator of nature and grew up next to a park uh, where my family went almost every day. But the way we engaged that nature was on a path. We never went off of it. We didn't eat things that we found. It was very much like nature is beautiful. Let's stay out of it. So I didn't grow up like as an outdoors adventurer person, didn't really camp until I was in my 30s. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm on a walk on one of these kind of irritated days working eight hours in the office uh, and then commuting an hour on each side of that. So inside and cramps and not getting enough fresh air and sunshine, I'm outside and I notice that the landscaping is all native plants, which is great, but also kind of odd because the they obviously made the decision to grow intentionally what would have grown there anyway, but just in a more orderly fashion. And I was kind of thinking about that, like, wow, that's a bit ridiculous, <laughs> you know, to take, to uproot something, create a whole new structure, and then just put it back. Um, and there are wonderful reasons to have a native plant garden, and I'm not critiquing that. But it was just, just this idea that this is what our culture kind of does. Um, it needs to impose its own domination and structure on nature. And as I was thinking about that, I spied a wild beehive. Uh, within one of the oak trees that had been planted. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever seen live wild bees. I'd only ever seen them, you know, in a, in a honey keeper, in a honey maker's setup with those kind of structured box hives. But this was a wild one. It was in a hole in the oak tree. And I just had a profound, like transfixed moment with nature. It was kind of transcendent where it was like, oh my God, these bees are doing what they evolved to do. They're all working in synchrony. They're making this beautiful, tasty product that uh, not only supports their community, but supports other communities. They're pollinating. I mean, it just, I just, the, the kind of perfection of natural systems hit me all at once. And it was at that moment that a landscaper mm -hmm. pulled up behind me and uh, was eyeing the beehive and I was triggered out of my like reverie, went back into the office. And then the next day, the beehive was gone. So I believe he removed it. So all of these things, you know, were sort of these like touch point uh, experiences where I was like, we're not living in sync with nature. We're dominating, controlling it. It's making me sick. It's making me feel terrible. I got to get out of this. And I have to find that true mystery and what my place is in the natural world. And so that's what I tried to do on my journey. Right. It sounded like you saw beauty in the beehive and then it was something that was not seen as maybe beautiful in that environment and it, it would be removed because people wanted to landscape and kind of make it perfect for what their vision was. And it reminded me even kind of like maybe it was like a Truman Show movie experience where things were just so 
landscaped and picture perfect. Mm. And it's like, where Mm -hmm. is the, what you're saying, like the mystery and that beauty and something unique where I can just connect with like the natural habitat rather than almost like I'm walking in indoors, but outdoors. Very good. Yeah. Like it was supposed to be a conservatory, a botanical garden. Yeah. And this idea of safety that people fear nature so much, you know, like fear getting sued because somebody got stung by a bee is what I was thinking. Um, And that having that is dangerous in our environment, even though we wouldn't have any flowers or fruits if we didn't have the bees. So it's also this just kind of like uh, lack of acknowledgement of our intertwined nature with with those bees and with what they're doing. Right. I sometimes wonder if how people and societies come in and they manicure everything. And does that throw off the ecosystem a little bit Mm. by making these civilizations and removing us? And whereas like there should be maybe animals and more natural life in society, it's more pushed out. And I'm like, how does that actually affect the earth? I wonder. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so much of the earth's surface is now taken up by human development and you know, it's something like 2,400 trees are cut down every minute. Um, we are completely decimating the habitats of other species, and they're going extinct at rates that they haven't ever gone extinct before during human um, settlement of the earth. So we're clearly the cause of this mass extinction that we're enduring, and we're clearly the cause of uh, what geologists are now calling it the, it's an epic, and it's called the Anthropocene. Have you heard of that? So it's this idea that like humans have had such a dramatic impact on the earth that we're now in this new geological phase. We've passed out of the Holocene, which was, you know, kind of um, pre, pre-human settlement, pre-human population explosion. And now because of the mining and the deforestation and the urban development, the suburban development that we've caused, uh, we're in an entirely new phase of, of how the earth functions. And we know this because we're seeing so much um, climate disruption, right? I wanted to mention um, in particular for this question is that a lot of people don't understand how much of the earth and our available kind of fertile land is taken up with agriculture and what agriculture actually is when we're talking about industrial methods and uh, a mass uh, consumer system of food production. So basically, agriculture's function on the environment is like a natural catastrophe because each year what you're doing is you are sort of creating a, like totally decimating, taking away all of the plants, um, putting all sorts of chemicals onto the land if it's traditional agriculture and all of the um, native inhabitants, including even like the microbiome of the soil and the invertebrates that live in it, uh, and as well as all of the plants and mammals and birds that would have existed and had their habitat on that agricultural land that has been completely destroyed, right? And so, and then you're kind of starting over as if a flood had happened, but actually floods are even better than agriculture because they bring nutrients into the system. Um, it's more like a wildfire that happens every single year on every agricultural field. So agriculture is just a total natural catastrophe, volcano erupting every single planting season. Um, and then all the nutrients are taken out of the soil, right? And we know there's so many problems with our contemporary um, fertilizers and pesticides that we apply to that, which then go into our waterways and kill all sorts of aquatic life. 
So um, the very things we eat every day, right, are part of this eco side, this destruction. Um, and that's not even get tapping into all of our electronic goods, all of our consumer items, which are also if, if it involves any kind of mining, you know, that's that's really uh, damaging ecosystems and creating pollutants um, and not allowing what would have lived there to live there. So, yeah, we are humans in our contemporary state are bad news for ecology. There's just no way around that. But what I think is, is exciting and hopeful is that we, for 96% of our history on the planet, were not destructive. We were living um, in balance with the ecology and not creating all of these issues. So we can do that again, because that is our blueprint for how to live on the earth. Um, it's not like we are innately destructive. Right. Yeah, I think it's definitely something for people in general to be mindful of. And then to take it back to what we were talking about with the beehive and kind of the appreciation for nature and wanting to be immersed in and connected to nature rather than feeling removed from it. Do you think that there are any benefits to having a manicured society? Well, people enjoy that life, right? If, if there weren't amazing comforts and conveniences and recreation and civilization, we wouldn't do it, right? So it appeals to our dopamine reward system, our sense of aesthetics, our advanced cognitive reasoning. There are so many benefits um, to the way we live, right? But I would say they're all at the cost of this massive ecocide. And so eventually we won't have it. <laughs> so it's a question of like, what do we value more? Is there a way to have the beauty and the, uh, some of the comforts and conveniences of our current lifestyle, but also, uh, you know, harmonize better with the environment and not pollute and destroy so much. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Definitely. People do appreciate all everything manicured. So I was just seeing your perspective because it as we do kind of miss out on some of those things that pop up like the beehive or just like things you would see or like deer running through the town. You just don't necessarily see that as much when you have more civilization and uh, things that are manicured and controlled. But I think um, people, they kind of almost get so used to this, the functionality of living the life they want in the parameters they want to live that they maybe don't realize that they are being disconnected from from nature. It's like they're maybe unaware of it even. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing how quickly this mindset has taken hold. Like when you look at the long history of Homo sapiens on the earth, it's really only been like the last two or three generations, right? So we're talking about 60 to 80 years uh, where we have most, most of us living in uh, Western industrialized countries, um, really have no direct connection to nature in our daily lives. And we do not rely directly upon interacting with nature for our subsistence. So this has happened in such a quick span of time. And it's almost like, I mean, I, this has happened to me too. You know, we kind of been brainwashed into thinking all this progress, all this technology is great. And it represents, you know, the pinnacle of our civilization. And we're so comfortable and convenient here. But, um, but we're absolutely, like you said, missing out we have deprived ourselves of extremely healthy and um, nourishing relationships with nature and with each other by having all this technology as intermediating every, every interaction. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think people need to wake up. We need to, there's got to be a big, massive education effort. And um, yeah, I won't say too much more about that, but I think you're spot on that like, yeah, a lot of people don't even realize that many of the reasons that they're feeling uncomfortable or there's psychological distress or there's metabolic disease is because they're not living in a way that, uh, that is how we evolved to live. They're kind of mismatched mm -hmm. with our evolutionary adaptation. And when you correct yeah, totally. that, they, they begin to live healthy, healthier, happier lives with more social connection, um, with less isolation and less dependency on technology. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's like when you get into those habits of say, like you maybe are someone who likes to exercise and then you go a week cause you got so busy and you didn't exercise, but then you go back out and you're, you go for a run or you go for a walk and you're all of a sudden like reminded of how good that is for you. Mm -hmm. And it's like people maybe who don't ever exercise or don't ever go out because they're just in the habit of not doing it almost don't realize like that significance in something but if you're already a little bit attuned to it then you're like whoa I feel the difference in exercise or I feel the difference in being in nature as opposed to being in the habit of never being in it mm -hmm. right exactly and I have to stress again that this is so recent in human history that someone would have the choice not to exercise right because mm -hmm. because of the way our lives are structured now that's a possibility but it never was before and certainly not in the period mm -hmm. in which humans evolved i mean exercise mm -hmm. is just you wouldn't even call it that it's just movement movement is part a daily part of life and you get a lot of it because you need to get food from your environment you need to um mm -hmm. you know go far in order to search for the tubers that your your clan needs to eat for dinner um you have to chase children, you, you know, there's just no end to the movement in a natural life. And so in our artificial, uh, industrialized lives, it's, it's funny to me that like, this is a possibility that you wouldn't move your body. You wouldn't, um, involve your full being in your life because you can just sit there all day in front of the screen. <laughs> it's just, it's right. totally out of yeah, sync with, true. with human, um, health and evolution. Totally. Yeah. Like this more hunter gatherer lifestyle is, something that goes hand in hand with exercise. That's true. Yeah. It's like, it's just being in the modern society. It's like everything you can just get DoorDash or you can just get everything sent to you or you can work remotely online. And it's like, you could really just like never leave your house for mm -hmm. years if you didn't want to, which is right. so bizarre. Right. But yeah. Question here though, if we are no longer in the wild sense, how can we rewild? What is that? Where are the locations we should go to do that? Right. Okay. So maybe I should introduce rewilding, which is this idea that started in the practice of nature conservation, where uh, scientists were looking at the earth and seeing that there's this new geological epoch of, you know, mass intervention on the earth's surface and the entire biosphere is affected by humans. Um, and what can we do to preserve and protect some areas such that they remain untouched and undamaged? So rewilding is a practice where you take large swaths of land and you uh, leave them alone or you restore them to a certain point in time, maybe pre-industrial revolution. 
And then you um, bring in the species that would create a balanced food web there. So oftentimes they will bring in a top predator that might be missing. One of the examples is um, rewilding in Yellowstone National Park, where wolves had been banished from the park or overhunted to basically extinction within that area in the 1920s. But in the 1990s, they decided to bring the wolves back and they brought them from another area where they were living naturally. And what happened was the wolves completely integrated with the ecosystem at Yellowstone and all of these positive benefits happened as a result of the wolves being there. Not just that now we have an apex predator, but rather they are taking care of overpopulated uh, deer groups. They are then, um, the deer are not um, decimating certain grasslands. Um, those grasslands are then able to grow in ecological succession and become trees. So they saw even down to like the riparian areas, which is like areas by streams and rivers were much healthier as a result of introducing wolves. So it's a, it's a wonderful example and experiment in how, uh, restoring rewilding can create all these benefits. But what was missing from this conservation vision was the participation of humans. Because as I've been talking about, humans were an integral apex predator, had the same type of positive cascade of effects on an ecosystem that wolves would have. And uh, because now we're kind of domesticated, we're industrialized, we don't think of ourselves as being that positive force in an ecosystem. But what if we did? And so human rewilding is um, acting on that question. So what if we were to become, once again, uh, people living in tune with our environment in, you know, the way that we evolved to do. So eating, sleeping, socializing, um, you know, creating all of our goods, everything in nature from natural materials. That's the premise of rewilding. But there's a lot of ways to do it. You don't have to go and, you know, create a whole Stone Age community out uh, on BLM land, which some people would like to do. And I wrote about them in my book. But you can um, simply do anything, anything at all that brings you back more in alignment with your evolutionary heritage. So if that's going barefoot more often, if it's spending more time in the sun, if it's socializing more face to face, right? Because hunter gatherer groups don't have the option of any kind of media. Everything is face to face. And our our brains, our bodies, uh, even I believe our spirits are still fundamentally the same, the same genetics as our early Homo sapiens ancestors and the same as um, other hunter-gatherer groups that still subsist on the earth today. So we are all born hunter-gatherers and we are just trained to be civilized people. So we have this innate, uh, these innate qualities within us. And if we just activate them f- through various practices, there are so many benefits. Mm-hmm. I love that. It makes me even think about, you're talking about how innate we are in to be integrated with nature and everything. And sometimes I think because our, because we live in such a manicured environment, I mean, not all of us, if some people don't, I guess, but most of us do, I guess. And it's also, I think, influences how we see each other. It's like, we don't maybe see each other as we should in the sense of being part of nature, but we see each other almost maybe a little bit more robotic than we should. Mm, yeah. Um, Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, or we see each other as uh, just transactional, 
or we're just trying to get yeah, like, or give that's... something or sell to somebody. And we really don't care about them as full people, as spirits, as parents, as children. Like mm-hmm. they're just numbers. Are these like yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would say that is completely contrary to how we evolved psychologically, right? With we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're not intended. And let me put a figure to that, to that manicured question you had. Something like mm-hmm. here, I just had it down here. Um, 82, 82% of Americans live in urban or suburban areas. So that's most people. And most urban and suburban areas are, are way developed, right? And we've got nothing but gas stations and McDonald's and Walmarts and, you know, anything you could possibly want to buy. But when we think about like how many people we see on the streets of Manhattan every day who we don't know, we'll never know, we have no understanding of that. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance for our brains to handle that. Um, what we're used to and what we want and crave and babies want this, toddlers want this. That's why they're stranger danger. We want those familiar faces. We want to know that we can trust um, and support the people that we're with. So we have had to very much alter our mass psychology to accommodate um, the billions of people on the planet right now, most of whom we will never have a face-to-face interaction with, but who you know, we see a huge percentage of when we're in these urban areas without any kind of genuine connection. Mm -hmm. Right. And a thought about that hunter gatherer mindset and having the immediate return. I mean, they're also, I would think they would put in a lot of hard work to hunt down animals and to gather whatever they needed in those moments. They might have immediate return, but they really put that effort in. So they also probably receive that gratification rather than somebody who goes to the supermarket and is like, hey, let me just like put some stuff in my cart and I'm good to go. Yes, that is so true. Uh, What the anthropologists who study hunter-gatherer communities that exist today, and they are kind of a stand-in for how all ancient humans operated uh, up until we got more complex societies. What they find is that there is great life satisfaction among these groups. Uh, People are not kind of mired in existential questions. They don't wonder about their purpose. They don't wonder what their role is because they're born into a society that fully values them and needs them to survive. Everybody has an essential role in the survival of the group. Even if it's uh, a disabled grandpa, he's there storing the stories and the knowledge of that tribe, passing down that information to the younger people. And he's respected as an elder. That's an essential role. Um, the baby represents the future. And so everybody gathers around the baby, plays the baby, understands that uh, the group doesn't go on if uh, anything happens to that baby. So there's a very different conception of what the purpose of life is because everybody has a purpose that they feel deeply. And part of that is the idea of immediate return. So they're not waiting around wondering, what should I do for my career? Um, how am I going to find happiness in this life? No, happiness is what they're born into. Their social group and the environment, nature, all of their activities provide so much happiness and fulfillment. So it's extremely different from us um, in that so many of us feel like we don't have a purpose, that we don't have a clear role in society. And so we have to seek that out. We have to go to a million self-help seminars. um, And we are reduced to this idea that we're just sort of consumers. And that's our purpose. And we need to go to the grocery store, buy the stuff, go on Amazon, order it to be delivered to our house. We keep the economy going. But if some of us don't do that anymore, it doesn't really matter. Very different in the tribal situation uh, where everything that you do 
has a purpose and meaning and contributes to the group. Right. And then people who live in these hunter-gatherer communities, they must, I'm sure, very intentional with where they establish their home and their community, because I guess they would need the right environment, like the they would need woods to go hunting and maybe a river to catch fish. Or is that something they think about before deciding to adapt, adapt to that lifestyle? So nomadic hunter-gatherer bands, um, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of strategy and forethought because like I said previously, they're born into a group that has been doing the same things for eon, eons uh, for a very, very long time. And if they do need to make a change, uh, yes, it is based on things like where are the resources available? So if they exhaust maybe the root tubers that they've been subsisting on over the winter, they're gonna move out of that area and go find um, the fresh greens and the berries um, and the new caribou herd that will support them for the next season. So they're constantly moving around based on resource availability. Um, they can live in any climate, right? We've got hunter-gatherer groups uh, in ancient history, you know, pre 10,000 years ago, living um, up in the Arctic, in the deserts, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, in the savannah, in the, um, in the jungle, the equatorial areas, in the rainforest. So humans are the most adaptable species on the planet. And that is because uh, our large brains, our opposable thumbs, we, and our th thinking ability to adapt and quickly move to a new area. If, you know, for instance, a volcano erupts or fire comes through, or there's a flood. Mm -hmm. So those, um, those people actually like, they, like, I'm kind of curious about the people who exist today, like the modern people who want to, maybe they were modern people and want to live a more hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So I guess they would join a group who's already doing that, or maybe link up with other families and then start living kind of differently than maybe the typical modern person. So there are no existing groups of hunter-gatherers who are people who grew up in modern industrial society like you and me. That isn't a thing because there really isn't the land or territory for it. And as I said, you kind of have to be born into that group and have it be going on for generations for it to really sustain and, uh, and subsist in an environment. So there's nothing like what you described, but what there are are people who for various times of the year, parts of their life will go live a, a lifestyle that's very close to hunting and gathering and foraging and being nomadic. And those are the folks that I profile in the book. So there's groups that get together at uh, primitive skills gatherings, also known as ancestral skills gatherings. These happen for about a week um, at different times of the year. A lot of them occur in the summer on the West Coast, the East Coast, um, throughout the South, also in Europe and Israel. Tens of thousands of people participate in these gatherings and they come together to learn ancient skills like foraging, uh, bow hunting, atlatl throwing, which is an ancient weapon that predates the bow, um, and then tanning hides, preparing meat, processing animals, making anything you need to live, like sandals and clothing, out of those materials, um, gathering, collecting wood for shelters, that sort of thing. So there are people practicing and teaching that at these gatherings all over. Many of those folks are experts and they live uh, with those skills in their lives. Most of them have to have you know, uh, access to extensive land to be able to 
legally use the resources that are available. It's possible to do it on uh, Bureau of Land Management, BLM land, and also some national forests. Of course, private land, you can do what you want. Um, but yeah, it's really kind of sad that these are the skills that make us human, that allowed us to survive collapses of civilization and make it through. <clears throat> but yet there are no modern people who really live that way. They're only existing hunter-gatherer groups whose settlements and nomadic camps go back thousands and thousands, perhaps 50,000, 80,000 years in the same general territory. And uh, so they are the kind of last remaining true homo sapiens who are living the lifestyle that we evolved to live. But there are lots of folks in the Western world, in the industrialized economies, who are curious about this lifestyle, finding it to be uh, something that provides health and happiness, and therefore something that they want to practice and live with. Yeah, it's amazing that this is being offered in the States that like you can just go and do kind of like a retreat and like learn these skills. And um, that's so cool. And what exactly is like the name of of that event that takes place that teaches people about these skills? Yeah, so these are called primitive skills or ancestral skills gatherings. The ones that I've attended uh, include one called Between the Rivers and Saskatoon Circle, which are both, both in the high desert of Eastern Washington. In California, we have the Buckeye Gathering, which is in the Chico area every May, uh, the Acorn Gathering around Santa Barbara, which happens in March. There are a few others that happen um, in Oregon, different like in the fall or the spring. Um, and then the most well-established two gatherings that exist, one is called rabbit stick, which refers to an old hunting weapon of Native Americans. Rabbit stick happens in Rexburg, Idaho every September. And winter count, which happens every February in uh, rural Arizona. So you can Google these, look them up, find, uh, you know, take vacation time, spend a week with folks who know these skills and learn them yourself. And it's really exciting. There are also tons of wilderness skills that teach the same techniques and, and uh, give the same knowledge. So many of those, they're, they're called wilderness schools. For younger children, they might be called forest schools, preschool age, et cetera. But um, yeah, there's lots of opportunity. It's a super growth industry. Folks are very interested in self-sufficiency, gaining these skills getting survival ability in, in the wild. And so, so many um, small groups are popping up to teach these things. It's really great. Very cool. And then when you, back to like the initial point in time when you felt like that, maybe that disconnect from nature with the beehive story, was that a moment where you kind of looked up yourself opportunities to connect with nature and then came across these groups like the primitive the primitive groups. So I heard about the primitive skills gatherings through some of my research with those rewilding experts. And it was just like one thing led to another. As I attended the, the skills media meetings, I met people who I wanted to study with and spend time with um, in their natural habitat. And so I would go and do research with them, um, learn specialized skills like animal tracking and that sort of thing. So I just kept following my gut about where I needed to go next and what I needed to do. When you write, do you ever have hesitant, any hesitancies about what you put out? So in this day and age, it is essential that we have editors, uh, maybe even for everything we put on social media. Because uh, as you know, it's very easy to get canceled or be criticized for saying the wrong word offending some group. And so I would say absolutely not. I would never 
really put anything out in the public that hasn't had at least a first review by some more eyes that are well aware of the cultural connotations of what I'm dealing with. And I want to emphasize that my editors were fantastic. I'm so grateful for their advice. When they went through my book, they made a lot of suggestions about what to include and what to take out and maybe who not to mention, what ideas would be a little too shocking. So there are certainly things I kept to myself and probably will <laughs> just keep to private conversations or private groups where I feel like they won't be exploited or sensationalized. But yeah, I think it is really essential in 2023 to have other people review uh, the gist of what you're going to say, just so that you can, you know, avoid those pitfalls of getting canceled and um, having a rough go of it, which happens to many people. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, there, it seems like there's a lot of value in having those editors and having discernment and just giving you the opportunity to expand on something or or kind of take something and make it, uh, critique it a little, so. One thing I noticed that you brought up in the book was you talked about tracking and how tracking of animals and what they do, or you see steps from animals can tell you a story and connected that tracking could be the origin of the human ability to tell stories. How important was storytelling in the book? Because you had a lot. Storytelling is so essential in every aspect of life. I don't know any field where storytelling isn't how you grab people's attention. So it is uh, crucial. It's the backbone of any story, whether it's nonfiction or a textbook. I mean, some textbooks have absolutely no narrative and that is a flaw of theirs. But with any content that's created, yeah, you need to have a story. You need to have a progression. You need to have the reader identify with whoever's telling the story or whatever the act rising action is. So um, it is true that tracking does lend itself to storytelling because as you're reading the tracks, you have a sense of the sequence of time. So the turkey stopped here. Maybe it flew up for a second. It left some scat. It was pecking around. You can see all this in the substrate of the soil. You can see the marks that are made. Once you learn how to read tracks like that, you can then tell that story. And that story helps you follow that animal. It helps you predict what it might have done next. So the theory is that humans, um, evolved to you know have this amazing cognition of storytelling and putting actions in the correct sequence in order to predict what might be in the future and therefore being able to hunt down that turkey and eat a wonderful dinner that night so yeah uh storytelling in my book is my book is a bit genre busting because it started out as straight nonfiction. I wanted to be very accurate with my sources, depict the science, the anthropology, the archaeology, the ecology very uh, precisely with all sorts of references. But uh, it turned out that it became immersive journalism. I wanted to participate and learn these skills and have relationships with the folks that I was interviewing and spending time with. And uh, my editors, once again, were crucial in this aspect to encourage me uh, to put more of myself in the story. And it really was this sort of hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell hero's quest, where the main character um, has some sort of difficulty in the beginning. They go on a journey to rectify that difficulty. They encounter obstacles or other people that offer advice, challenges that they have to overcome. And eventually they return either to the original place or to some sort of uh, original point in a, a transformed state. And so that is what my book is. It's absolutely a heroine's quest 
and it is completely oriented by the uh, storytelling and needing to have that rising action, climax, and falling action. Right, and with technology, I think it brings it brings a lot of there can be a lot of positive things, but through the mindfulness that you're bringing about with your book, like that can be super impactful. And what are ways that changed in your life based off of your experiences with um, these like primitive groups that you've taken part in and, and really done the rewilding with? So the one thing that I always practice every single day that I didn't before I wrote this book or encounter all these folks who call themselves rewilders is that I didn't make a deliberate effort to get outside and be in as wild a place as possible. But that's something I do now. I need to have like at least an hour outside in the woods or on the beach or um, you know exploring plants at a park. I've got to have that because uh, I found that that creates just such a better mood, health, happiness for me. And I also try to forage wild food. So if I can find anything, whether it's like the tip of a fir tree, uh, today I was out harvesting manzanita berries um, and looking at blackberry bushes, try to, you know, ingest some of my environment so that I can feel a part of the local place uh, and believe, you know, that I'm participating in the ecosystem in which I live instead of only eating food that comes from 1500 miles away and drinking coffee that comes from uh, slave labor and equatorial uh, economies. So absolutely the getting outside, being in nature, immersing myself, moving my body, getting sunshine, and then the wild food made such a difference in my life. And it's something I totally advocate for. Um, and I'm really grateful that I've been able to make changes in my life to accommodate that new habit. That's a good life tip. Jessica, what would be one message you would want people to take away from this book of yours? Agriculture only developed 10,000 or fewer years ago. So the way we live today is actually very deviant from how Homo sapiens evolved and how we lived for most of the time on the planet. Knowing that, what can we do uh, to bring ourselves back in alignment with that? So I want people to have that consciousness that like, oh my God, everything that you take for granted, the coffee maker in the morning, uh, the phone screen, the Netflix television at night, uh, all of the technology and transportation and medical system that we have, it's so recent and unproven in its sustainability. So to then deeply consider what are we humans doing on the earth, doing to the earth, doing to each other that could be different uh, and looking at the blueprint of hunter-gatherer societies and finding inspiration in that. I believe it opens up an entire world of possibilities for us and a new way to live that is actually very old. That's a wonderful message right there. I would like to thank both of you for joining on this one. My wonderful co-host, Rebecca Faith Lawson mm -hmm. and awesome. Jessica Kerukraft, author of this fine book, Why We Need to Be Wild, which comes out or should be out when this discussion goes up. Glad for both of you. It was great talking with you, Jessica. And yeah, I'm so excited to read your read your book when it comes out. So and thanks for having me, Armin. Glad to. And we are out. The Armin Show is a culmination of so many of my discussions with thoughtful individuals, knowledgeable individuals, creative individuals, people who have something to say in a category that they have put effort into maybe for years, maybe for decades. A lot of experience comes through. I like finding the links between people 
and topics of discussion in the categories that you have come to recognize. We're glad to continue the show, to branch out, to expand, to have more links between individuals, to have bigger groupings of individuals together in different formats so that the show becomes more of a show. And as we continue to do this, we're always glad for your support along the way. The Armin Show is something that has developed from all my past efforts, blogging, making videos, audios, and has reached to this point where there are now hundreds of episodes with people or just with myself, bringing knowledge, sometimes entertainment, information, something that can help us progress forward in the categories that I tend to cover. Hope you enjoy it, and onward we go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any takeaways you had, and we'll see you on The Armin Show next time.